Luke 19, I'm going to start reading at verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. That's the passage we're going to focus on in particular this morning. It's going back a few weeks now um, to when I was last speaking, and we looked at the immediately preceding passage where Jesus is approaching Jericho, where we read Jesus was entering Jericho and passing through. As he approached Jericho, he saw a blind man by the side of the road, who, uh, or rather a blind man sees him, and calls out, Son of David, have mercy on me. A man who is blind, Jesus, in amongst all the crowd, is aware of that one man's plight. He hears his cry and he goes up to him and he heals him. And so we were looking last time about how Jesus didn't just have like tunnel vision on what his goal was. At this time, I've got to get to Jerusalem. I'm going to the cross. That's where I'm going to die for the sins of the world. He's, not, uh, he's focused on that, but not to the extent that he ignores the detail of one man's life in the crowd as he's approaching Jericho. And so graciously, he reaches into that man's life with a wonderful, life-transforming encounter. And that's why I think the Gospels are so wonderful in that we see Jesus in the flesh personally encountering individuals and totally changing their lives. That man's life was completely transformed because he received his sight. And so we're going to look at another personal encounter with Jesus. And that's the encounter that Zacchaeus has. It's interesting, these two scenarios taking place in or around Jericho. You might have heard of a tale of two cities, and as it were, this is almost a city of two tales. The first tale, as we've seen, this blind man who really is in a terrible situation and is a victim of bad health and also the crowd's hostility. The crowd, as it were, are oppressing him. The crowd are saying, shut up. Don't bother Jesus. He's not going to be interested in you. Just, this has got nothing to do with you. Clear off, out of the way. That's this man's story. So Jesus notices this man, notices him as an impressed victim. His, his problem with his health is not of his own doing. And Jesus has mercy on him. And so he might take from that, well, Jesus is merciful to us. When we're in a situation that's not of our own doing, when we're suffering bad health, Jesus got the power to heal. And so we might get to this second scenario then with Zacchaeus and think, well, surely then Jesus, what we know about Jesus so far from that earlier incident is that he sides with the victim. He sides with the person who is oppressed. 
Here's Zacchaeus, who is an oppressor. And so surely now, Jesus is going to really uh, maybe have a go at Zacchaeus. And uh, one commentator has suggested this, that he, Jesus, maybe the crowd were expecting Jesus to say this to Zacchaeus. You're a collaborator. You're a, you're a tax collector for this invading Roman Empire. You're an oppressor of these good people, taking money over and above what you should be, making yourself rich. You've betrayed your country and your gods. This community's hatred of you is fully justified. So, Zacchaeus, you must quit your job, repent. Go to Jerusalem for ceremonial purification, return to Jericho, apply yourself to keeping every dot of the law. And if you're willing to do these things, on my next trip to Jericho, I will enter your newly purified house, I'll offer you my congratulations. So that was perhaps what the crowd were expecting or hoping Jesus to say to Zacchaeus. Or in other words, Zacchaeus, clean up your act, then I'll show you acceptance. Then I'll spend time with you. Then you and I can become closer acquaintances. And for us, we can expect the same sort of treatment from God. As though when we mess up, God might say to us, well, clean up your act, then I'll accept you. And in some ways that presents before us an impossible mountain to climb. But instead, Jesus shows us what God is really like. And so Jesus, with 11 words, transforms Zacchaeus' life. Let's look at what he says and what it means to Zacchaeus. And then we're going to look, what does that mean for us? So Jesus reached the spot in verse 5 where Zacchaeus was. He looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So let's just look at that for a little minute. First of all, he calls him Zacchaeus. Now, that might not sound particularly profound, but how did Jesus know his name? At this point in time, Jesus had no interaction with this man. Zacchaeus has run ahead. He's not been able to get through the crowd, so he's not met Jesus. Jesus has not met him. How does Jesus know his name? Now, it could be one option, and to be honest, this is slight speculation. It could be that Jesus, as he was spending time with his heavenly father that morning or early that day, felt that God said to him, felt his father say to him, today you're going to meet a man called Zacchaeus. He's a tax collector. He's totally hated by the community in Jericho. I want you to reach out and show, me, show him how amazing my love is and how amazing my grace is. That could be how it worked out. Or it could be that as Jesus is entering into Jericho, as he's walking through Jericho, with the crowd all bustling around him, the crowd have spotted Zacchaeus. They've seen him dash on ahead. They've seen him run up a tree. And uh, they're hurling insults at him. Because it could be that... In a crowd, you're kind of safe to do that. One-on-one, when Zacchaeus has just come round to your house and saying, uh, <coughs> cough up, you owe me five pounds. I, th- I thought it was just two. No, definitely five. You said two last time. Well, things have changed. Uh, <laughs> in that moment, all those individuals could be petrified of the guy and just think, oh, no. Now they're in the crowd. He's stuck up the tree. What a perfect opportunity just to let him know what you really think when he can't really tell what voice is coming from where. 
So Jesus is kind of aware, perhaps, of what this crowd thinks of Zacchaeus as he's been wandering through. So when he sees him, he knows who he is. But Jesus is not being controlled by the crowd. He's not trying to please the crowd. And instead, Jesus does want to please his father, who's perhaps saying to Jesus, go on, show show them what my kingdom is really like. Show them what my kingdom was really like. And uh, as we were singing earlier about the kingdom of God, in God's kingdom, broken lives are made new. Here is a broken life that God is about to restore, that God is about to, um, to make new again. So show them what my kingdom's really like. Show them how amazing my grace really is. He says, come down immediately. Now, to you and I, that could sound like a bit of a telling off. But actually, Jesus is giving him back his dignity. You see, in that culture, for a man to run ahead of a crowd in the Middle East would have been a source of, of shame, embarrassment, and ridicule. Zacchaeus decides he wants to see Jesus Forget what other people think. I'm going to run. I'm going to try and get to a place where I can see Jesus. Not only that, but he climbs a tree. And again, we might just think, oh, that sounds exciting. But for them, that would have just been total embarrassment, total loss of dignity. Jesus says, no, come down from the tree. Don't stay up there. And he says, I must come to your house today. Now, if I came up to you after the, uh, the meeting this morning and we're having coffee downstairs, I said to you, I must come to your house today. You might think me slightly rude, presumptuous. You might be slightly worried. Oh, no. Am I clapping too loud? No one is ever clapping too loud for me. I love it. Um, So for our ears, that might sound a bit presumptuous. Because for us, we would kind of show honor and acceptance and love to someone else, perhaps, by inviting them to our house. That's often the way it might work in this culture. Back then... It was more a case that you showed honor and acceptance by inviting yourself round. And that would give that person, that host, um, maybe a good reputation in their, in their town or in their city. That's what was, was going on. The crowd, remember, from last time, were probably wanting to take Jesus through Jericho, guide him through to a certain respectable person's house that the elders of that town decided, yeah, they're worthy to have this a traveling teacher, this traveling rabbi come into town. And so uh, we'll try and kind of get all those plans sorted and, uh, and invite Jesus to, to that place. Jesus saying, no, I'm going to go. I'm going to go to Zacchaeus' house. So with those 11 words, Zacchaeus' life is transformed. What then does this mean for us? What it means, first of all, we're going to look at three things. First of all, it means that Jesus reaches out to us, whoever we are, whatever we've done. Or to use that vision that uh, Phil was describing earlier on. However clean or however dirty, as it were, our hands are before a holy God, we find acceptance. We find a God who draws near to us. Not just when we are the victim, like the blind man, of circumstances outside of our control, or of nasty things that have been done to us, Jesus graciously intervenes in that man's life. But we see here that Jesus reaches out, not just to the victim, but he reaches out to the villain. He reaches out to us, 
when we're the victim, when there's some area of our lives, be it physical healing or something else, that is causing uh, suffering and angst and difficulty and upset and all the rest of it, God has power and grace to intervene. But he also has power and grace to intervene for villains. There's a fascinating verse in Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes 4 and verse 1, it says there, Again I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. You would expect the, 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 the oppressor to be the one that really cops it, who really comes in for a stiff time from the Lord. But God, in Jesus, is then reaching out. So God reaches out to us, whoever we are, whatever we've done, in situations where we're the victim, and also in situations where, if we're honest, we've been the villain. And if we're honest, we've probably got to acknowledge that we are an inconsistent mixture of both. From time to time, we might be more one than the other. But the chances are, we are a mixture of both. Now, some of you might be familiar with the, uh, the famous hymn, Amazing Grace, written by John Newton. He was an example of a guy who was a mixture of villain and victim. In his early years, growing up at sea, an absolutely miserable existence in the merchant navy, himself as a youngster, badly treated, victimized, enslaved by masters, tries to run away, gets clobbered again. He later becomes the captain of a slave trading ship, responsible for the misery of hundreds of others. A mixture of victim and villain. And actually, it's when he's a villain that God reaches out to him with amazing grace. In the middle of a massive storm. And he he prays to God, remembering his mother's faith. He prays to God. And God rescues him from that storm. And that was his first experience of God's amazing grace that then led him all the way through. Now, his life wasn't transformed completely in one swift flash. He came to Christ and actually for a while was still involved in the slave trade and treating slaves better, but then eventually moving away from it entirely to be involved uh, in the abolition of slavery. So a mixture of, of victim and villain. Now last time we were looking at the previous passage, we also looked at the example of David in the Old Testament. Again, an example of victim and villain. He was a victim. He was on the run from an increasingly insane and jealous and violent king, Saul. But there are other times when he was a villain. Slept with another man's wife, and when she became pregnant, eventually resorted to having her husband killed in battle to cover up his tracks. And for a while, nobody knew about it. And we kind of pick up the story in 2 Samuel and chapter 12. It says right at the end of, of chapter 11, when perhaps at that time David thinks he's, he's covered his tracks successfully. It says that uh, uh, but the thing David had done 
displeased the Lord. And God graciously, as, we, as we'll see, sends to David prophet Nathan. So we pick up the story, verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. Look at David's reaction. Verse 5. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. David is quick to spot an injustice somewhere else. He's quick to spot someone else's villainy, as it were. But then Nathan turns this around. Maybe as those words from David's lips have only just left his lips hanging in the air. In verse 7, Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave, you, uh, I gave your master's house to you, and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him and the sword, with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. So David, quick to spot when perhaps someone else has messed up, hoping that maybe things in his own life will be covered up. But just look at David's response. When all of that does come out into the open, got to say that David is a man who knows how to rep- repent. When it comes out into the open, to his attention, when he's confronted with this, he repents straight away. Verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He's not saying, well, don't you realize life is tough for a king? Don't you actually realize some of the previous situations I've been in? Well, I've really been on the receiving end of other people's hostility and uh, I've got a lot to cope with. And he didn't say, well, that woman, Uriah's wife, she's equally to blame as I am. Are you going to her as well? Are you going to, you know, give the same message to her? Make sure she hears it, all right? Does he say any of that? No, he says, I've sinned. He even then goes on to write a psalm about it, which is in the Bible for us all to read. The guy knew how to come to the Lord. He knew how to come to God in repentance. And so it's the same for us, that we're a mixture of victim and villain. And so if there's a scenario, some situation, be it healing, or be it something that's out of our control, something that we've not brought about ourselves, we have a gracious and compassionate God who demonstrated that, as we've seen here a few verses earlier, back in Luke, by Jesus healing that blind man, in amongst that massive crowd, spotting 
that man is calling out for me. I'm going to go to him. I'm going to intervene in his life. I'm going to transform his life and turn it around. That is God's amazing grace. And when we are the villain, when we kind of search our own hearts, have one of those moments where we just feel, actually, God is bringing stuff to my attention, and maybe like David, this ain't comfortable, I don't like it. But actually, I've got to face the facts. Actually, I've sinned. In this situation, I've messed up. Like Zacchaeus, maybe I'm responsible for hurting other people, taking money that didn't need to be taken. And in those situations, we have a gracious and compassionate God who demonstrated that grace by Jesus here reaching out to Zacchaeus, showing him amazing grace. Therefore, let's be like David, quick to repent. Let's be like Zacchaeus, who sought Jesus in a definite way. He didn't allow himself just to get lost in the crowd. He thought, I want to see Jesus. And he accepted the gravity of his own sin. Zacchaeus, as it happens later on, says, uh, if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. And that's interesting because that's what David said the man who had stolen that sheep should do. He should pay it back four times. That was what was dictated for people who had stolen. That was the standard in the Old Testament for people who had taken stuff, taken a, taken a sheep that didn't belong to them. And so Zacchaeus is saying, look, if I've cheated anybody. Actually, he's saying, I know I have cheated. I know I have stolen. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to admit the full gravity of what I've done. What are we like, I wonder, with receiving feedback? Because if we get hold of this, when people are sharing with us, maybe in a very delicate, sensitive way, maybe in a slightly... Uh, angsty, angry way, maybe with, in a way that isn't actually all that helpful, but they're sharing some feedback with us. Say, so actually, what you did, actually, that hurts. That's caused me offence. Are we quick to rush in with the, well, don't you realise what I have to go through? Don't you realise in all of this, I'm the victim? Or do we come and graciously say, actually, yes. I can see what you're saying. I, I have, I've hurt you, and actually I've sinned against God. And if that is ever the situation, whenever it is the situation, hopefully there's grace from that person to receive it, but also from God, there's certainly grace and compassion because we see Jesus reaching out to Zacchaeus in this wonderful way. Secondly, what we see here for Zacchaeus and what we see here for us is that Jesus offers us a brand new start. That's what he did to the blind man. He offered him a brand new start by giving him his eyesight back. And that's what he did to Zacchaeus. Now, where did it all go wrong for Zacchaeus? And he got himself into a complete mess, really. Very successful at tax collecting, but actually doing that by deceptive means and therefore thoroughly hated by the community. Where did it all go wrong? Well, one place or one factor might be this, the love of money. It says in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 9, people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. 
For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And that's what's happened in this situation. Maybe to start with, Zacchaeus just thinking, ah, I've just realized, you know, I've got a bit of a poker face. I can get away with this. I'm going to raise more money than actually people need to give me. And I'm going to do quite well out of that. And to begin with, he maybe enjoys the benefits that that money has to provide. But actually, stage by stage, step by step, he's wandering further away from God, and he's hurting more and more people, wandering away from good fellowship with that community. He's totally ostracized. Notice that when he wants to see Jesus, he says he's a short man, so he couldn't. Any ordinary, respectable, wealthy person back then, would just have to walk up to the crowd and the crowd would part and let him through so that he could see. This crowd doesn't want anything to do with him. They're not going to let him through. He's a lonely man. His wealth had made him exceptionally lonely. Also, there's the possibility that not only will the crowd not let him through, but that Zacchaeus is not actually safe in the crowd. There's no one who's going to watch his back for him. If he gets into that crowd and someone's in there and they think, actually, I just spy an opportunity here. I can do him over. Such a crowd, no one's going to know. If anyone does see, they're not going to care because we're all pretty much in the same boat when it comes to Zacchaeus. And when the crowd has parted, there's Zacchaeus lying on the floor and no one who obviously was to blame. So he is, he's in a bad way. This man is... He needs a brand new start. He needs a brand new start. And that is exactly what Jesus offers him. How does he do that? We've seen how Jesus invites himself around to the house. What Jesus does is shift the anger that the crowd felt towards Zacchaeus. Jesus shifted that anger onto himself. He said, all the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. The crowd then take offense at Jesus. It's as though Jesus is taking that anger off of Zacchaeus and taking it onto himself. Where Zacchaeus was the villain, Jesus is now becoming the villain in Zacchaeus' place. And that gives us a foreshadowing of what's about to happen on the cross. Remember that uh, it's only a few verses back in chapter 18, verse 31 onwards, that Jesus is, is explaining to, the crowd, to his disciples what's about to happen to him in, in Jerusalem. His disciples don't understand. Why is Jesus going to die? What's all this talk about? And so here, Jesus is kind of providing clues. This is what my kingdom is like. In my kingdom, God reaches out to villains as well as victims. In my kingdom, I take upon myself anger and hostility that otherwise you would experience. Paul describes it in book of 2 Corinthians for us. 2 Corinthians and chapter 5, verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made him who had no sin. God made Jesus to be our sin. God made 
Jesus, the villain, on our behalf, on Zacchaeus' behalf, so that they were then free from that hostility. Zacchaeus was under the crowd's hostility. It was, in a sense, justified because of what he'd done. It was understandable that the crowd didn't like him. It's understandable that God is not pleased with our sin. It's understandable that we have caused offence to him. Well, what does God do? He makes Jesus to be the villain so that we become the sons, so that we become the righteousness of God as it's described there in 2 Corinthians. Interestingly, Zacchaeus' name means pure or means righteous, which to begin with, at the beginning of the story, totally ironic. But actually, Jesus gives him the opportunity to be righteous, to become pure, to have, as it were, a new identity, to have a brand new start. And that's what Jesus does for us in his kingdom as well. Thirdly, we see this, that we're on a journey. There's a John Newton earlier on. God broke into his life, took him on a journey, step by step. Everything didn't change entirely at once. In one quick flash, he wasn't made the perfect individual. Zacchaeus, in one quick flash, is not made the perfect individual. When we come to Christ, we're not made the perfect person straight away. God is committed to working through stage by stage in our lives. So Zacchaeus receives this wonderful gift of God's grace, and he responds to that. You know, it wouldn't make sense if his life stayed exactly the same after encountering Jesus and accepting his kindness. It's the same for us. If, if we were to receive a most outrageous gift, let's say a brand new car, and up until this point, you've been driving a banger, rust bucket banger, and it's only got so many more miles on the clock, and you receive the gift of a new car which has everything as standard, which is economical as well. It hardly costs you anything. It's the dream car. You wouldn't keep that on the driveway and still drive around your banger. You'd think, oh, thank goodness, we can get rid of that. God's provided us with this wonderful new gift. And it's in the same way. For Zacchaeus to receive this acceptance, to receive this grace, it wouldn't make sense if his life just stayed the same. No one tells Zacchaeus what to do, but in verse 8 we find out Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. If I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. Zacchaeus started where he was. He didn't start by suddenly obeying the entire law. He started where he was. He started with his money. He started with what had previously been his lord or his master. He loved money. Now, having, been, having received this acceptance from Jesus, Jesus is his master, he's free from the love of money. And so he shows that freedom. Whereas previously his, his personal motto could have been wealth for self or more for me. Now, he's demonstrating here his, his freedom following Jesus, following Jesus' example. Now, Jesus showed him costly love by taking on the crowd's hostility. 
Now Zacchaeus is following that example, showing costly love. I'm going to give it away. Money is no longer my Lord, and actually, I am no longer my God. I'm going to use what I have to serve others. And so it's the same for us, starting from where we are, seeking to follow Jesus' example, becoming more and more like him, but understanding this is a step-by-step process of being more like Jesus. And it's interesting as well that Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house at the point where Zacchaeus has only pledged what he's going to do. Again, Jesus is not saying, go on, clean up your act, and then I'll accept you. Jesus is saying, no, salvation has come to this house. Why? Well, Jesus has come to that house. Salvation had come. Jesus says as well, this man too is a son of Abraham. He's not just talking about Zacchaeus being um, a physical uh, descendant of Abraham and therefore part of God's people. He's saying, no, here's a man who's following in Abraham's footsteps. Abraham was a man to whom God said, go, leave your hometown, go. I've called you, I'm sending you on a journey, I'm going to be with you. And Abraham went, not knowing exactly how things were going to work out. A man of faith. And that is the same for us, setting out on a journey, not necessarily knowing all the details of life. When we come to know Jesus for ourselves, we think, well, what will my life look like if I follow Jesus? What will my life look like if I follow him in this area of my life where perhaps previously I've just wanted to keep that under control myself? Where we are people like Zacchaeus stepping out on a new journey of faith. So, in these two stories that we've looked at the last couple of weeks, the blind man and Zacchaeus, we've seen what it's like to encounter Jesus. We've seen what it's like to encounter his amazing grace. Back in the Gospels, Jesus was in the flesh and people encountered him face to face. Now, we all of us encounter Jesus by the Spirit. And he's available to each and every one of us. And he is the same. What we know of Jesus now, though we do not see him in the flesh, is exactly the same as what we see back here. This amazing, wonderful grace. So he shows us that by by healing, by intervening, by answering prayer, by bringing a brand new start, by bringing a new identity. Both the blind man and Zacchaeus are a demonstration of God's miraculous and indescribable love. So let's respond to that love now. We're going to worship God together. So if the band wants to come up,